Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. The arrival of the Mayflower in Plymouth in 1620 and the Pilgrim's Feast with Wampanoag Indians a year later are recalled each November when we celebrate Thanksgiving. But what actually happened at that three-day feast? And how did the narrative change over time? A year ago, I asked Chris Newell those questions. Chris is the author of If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving, a fascinating new book for children that tries to set the record straight. He is also an award-winning educator and a proud citizen of the Passamaquoddy tribe. With help from Wampanoag scholar Linda Coombs, Chris offers young readers a fuller understanding of this pivotal encounter in American history and shows the devastating toll that colonization took on Indian tribes along the eastern coast. Chris is back today to talk about Native American Heritage Month and what it means to him. Later, we'll revisit our 2021 Plymouth Thanksgiving conversation. Here now is award-winning educator and author, Chris Newell. Hi, Chris. Welcome back to the program. Hi. As you know, it's Native American Heritage Month. How are you honoring your ancestors this month? And what are some of the ways you honor them year round? Such a great question. Native American Heritage Month is is not something that's necessarily created by Native people, but it, it has become very important to us as Native peoples. One of the ways that I honor my ancestors with this month is I I really use it as kind of a a jumping off point for education. I have a family history going back to uh, Louis Mitchell, my great-great-grandfather of uh, somebody that was a conservator and an educator. And what I see about the value of Native American Heritage Month is that it, it kind of points the conversation on Native peoples, and it allows me as an educator to, to really use it as a jumping off point to talk about things outside of the month, right? And then that's, uh, you know, to the second part of your question, how do I pay homage to my ancestors throughout the year? And, you know, this is just, it's the culture I was brought up with, that our ancestors are the links to sustainability on this land, you know, and uh, we're taught to speak uh, by the land itself. So one of the ways, or two of the ways, I should say, that I honor my ancestors all year round is uh, number one, I was born in a house where Passamaquoddy was a primary language and English was a second language. My father and my grandmother were both fluent. I'm not a fluent speaker, but it doesn't mean I can't be. And so uh, in my journey through life, I am really working to become a fluent speaker because it is a direct link to the way my ancestors thought. But also another gift that my father uh, handed down to me was our music. And so music is in our culture as Passamaquoddy peoples seen as what is described in the English language as a magical power, which is a really bad description of what I'm talking about. Anybody that loves music, anybody that uh, a song brings a tear to your eye, that's the power that we're talking about that the English language only has the word magic to use. 
And uh, music is definitely a big part of how I pay homage to my ancestors, uh, you know, by continuing to sing our old traditional songs, but also to create and compose new music to keep our younger generations really into it and, and show them that we can, our culture does change and evolve over time. Our music does. It reflects the reality that we live in now. That's so interesting. How can everyone honor this collective history and learn more about even the many atrocities committed against tribal communities really for centuries? There's some ways that I work with my colleagues at Agamal Educational Initiative. And two of the things that we often do when we work with, whether it's uh, kindergarten teachers, uh, you know, up to college professors and their students, is uh, number one, we try to normalize for them that English is a foreign language to this land, right? And so uh, if Americans were to become more realistic about that and realize that, they would understand that trying to talk about Native peoples through the lens of the English language worldview, which comes from England, is actually going to leave us a little bit short, right? So that's, that's you know, just come to a realization that there are limits to what you can learn in the foreign language of English, and the second thing that I, uh, we often do is uh, when we teach about Native peoples is we start in the present because too much of the way Native peoples have been written about historically has been all in the past tense. It feeds implicit biases to the American public that Native peoples are all dead and gone. It's more than one uh, case in my life where I've run into somebody where it surprised them that Native people are still in existence here in this country. So when we teach about Native peoples, right, you know, the 500 different 74 tribes, uh, the state-recognized tribes, and even the unrecognized tribes, we start in the present to make sure that people understand that these cultures are still here, they are still valid, and they are still just as uh, valuable to the future of what this country is going to be as, uh, as they were in the formation during the colonization days. And so those are the, the, the two main things, you know, just reminding Americans that English is a foreign language. Our languages are actually the original languages of this landscape. And also yeah. to start in uh, when, when, when thinking about peoples, think about us in the present first uh, and then start digging into our history and, and look through our window that way. And as you look towards the future, what are some of the biggest issues facing tribal communities that you think everyone should know about? Well, the biggest issue right now we are facing is a, a challenge to something called the Indian Child Welfare Act. And that challenge is going to be heard by the current Supreme Court on November 9th. And after that uh, case is heard, the implications of that case could lead into, uh, there, there's a serious fear that the implications of that case could cut into sovereignty or the ability of our communities, our, our na native nations to self-rule are going to be affected negatively by this particular case. And so that's one of the things, you know, ever since uh, the 50s, the United States government had a federal Indian policy of termination, where they literally were trying to terminate uh, native tribes. And then in the 60s, it started to turn around with the self-determination era which we currently live under. And that, you know, goes into the federal government's trust responsibilities to Native peoples. Our governments predate the United States government. All of those are part of that recognition. And this particular case is such a big deal for all tribes in the United States 
because it could affect the way the United States uh, looks at the sovereignty of our nations. And it may cut into that even more so than, than we're currently dealing with and undo some of the good work that has been done during the self-determination era. And uh, so there's a sincere fear that things could, the, the clock could turn back when it comes to native rights in this country. And that's active. That's happening right now in real time, uh, you know, right here in 2022. Who is bringing this case? There's um, uh, several different parties. Um, There's uh, mainly uh, pushed by the Goldwater Institute. So there is a a definite conservative um, uh, element to it. But the adoption industry sees the Indian Child Welfare Act as an impediment to the ability of the industry to kind of harvest native babies. Uh, And so there's, there's an element of the adoption industry that's with that. There's a religious element because just groups that founded this country really felt they needed to save us from ourselves and Christianize us. That's still in existence today. That's part of the motivation. And surprisingly, extractive industries like oil industries, because of that, once again, it's not just about Native children. This law, if it were to be struck down uh, and uh, if it were to go after tribal sovereignty, actually eliminates the ability of tribes to protect the, the, the few land and resources that we have now, which happen to be oftentimes oil-rich or uranium-rich, very, you know, very popular with extractive industries. And so they have a financial stake in this case as well. So there's a lot of money coming from a lot of different places in, in this particular case. This is so interesting and so important for all of us to look into more and to follow For our listeners who want to learn more about the case before the court, it's called Holland versus Brackeen. It challenges the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 and also tribal sovereignty. Thinking about your book, if you lived during the Plymouth Thanksgiving, I'm going to replay that conversation here because it's so rich. It was first published in 2021. I'm wondering, what have you heard from readers and educators about the book since then? Well, it's been a great reception I've gotten. I mean, I wrote the book definitely to try to uh, undo some of the things that foundational mythology of this country has done with writing about the, you know, the quote unquote first Thanksgiving as a very friendly narrative, which kind of discounts what happened before and what happened after. And if you live during the Plymouth Thanksgiving, really, to us, you know, takes the scope and looks outward from that one event, which did happen in 1621, a feast, but also looks at the, the, the factors that happened before and also the history that happened after as well, which were definitely detrimental to uh, Wampanoag and other tribes within the area. So the, that truth-telling at a children's level is something that a lot of folks have really uh, loved about uh, the book. That's one of the things that they feel makes it stand out in a lot of different ways from other first Thanksgiving books, right? And I I don't call it a first Thanksgiving because what we call a Thanksgiving today didn't exist necessarily in the 17th century, and you learn that in the book. Uh, So I undo some of those things, and I I, I give people a, a more real picture of how our country actually came to be, which there there is the, some good, but there's also a lot of bad and ugly. And so the, the reason for doing that by including it in the book was never to point fingers at certain groups and say that, that these people's fault, they should be bad. It was never that at all. It was really about looking at these histories, being critical of them as human beings, saying where things went wrong so that we can learn from them, 
and create a, a better collective future for all of us going forward. Because uh, as Native peoples living in this country today, there is no want amongst Native peoples to replay the events that happened back in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries in this country. There's actually a want of looking forward, uh, of uh, existing as neighbors, as, as my good friend Isatanamok says, as neighbors with legitimacy on this land. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. I really appreciate the conversation. Now, looking back, here is my 2021 conversation with Chris. Katie Height, a senior editor at Scholastic and the editor of the What If series, joined us. I am delighted that Chris has written this new book for children. It's called If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. Chris, tell us a little bit about it. This is a kind of a revamp of an older series of If You Lived or the the If You series from the 1970s. And this was about the Thanksgiving. And when Katie approached me about this particular project, I really wanted to bring a, a lot of Wampanoag voice to it. And so this is essentially a question and answer form retelling of the landing of the Mayflower in 1620. And of course, the feast that came along in 1621, which a lot of Americans refer to as the first Thanksgiving, but also kind of zooming out a little bit to that point of history and looking at the before and the after, and then kind of finishing up with talking about how the Thanksgiving holiday that we have today in 2021 actually came to be. Let's start with the arrival in 1620 and talk about the before and the great dying, which does call to mind a little bit the global pandemic. I wanted to make sure that in the book that Wampanoag people were being centered within their own historical narrative. And that involves including the complexity of life before 1620. And there were several events that began all the way back in the 1500s. Fishing ships from various European countries had already began arriving in the region. And along with that, they did make contact. There was some trade encounters. There was actually some slave taking by some of these ships at times. And in the process, disease was also transmitted onto the continent. And in the year 1616, an event known as the Great Dying began up in what is now the state of Maine. And it basically flowed down the coast from 1616 to 1619, all the way through Wampanoag territory and it would wipe out an estimated 80 to 90% of the coastal native populations in that area. So the, the Wampanoag were fearful when the pilgrims arrived, or they called the pilgrims called themselves the saints. Is that right? Well, it, that's an interesting phenomenon that I, I kind of talk about in the book because the 19th century has so much into shaping our uh, understanding of the narrative. So uh, back in 1620, they weren't calling themselves pilgrims necessarily, although William Bradford did describe the journey of the saints as a pilgrimage. There's more than just the the 40 or so passengers that were coming from Holland with Bradford uh, that, that were the religious separatists that we're also familiar with. There were several others that were part of the crew of the ship as well as folks that were coming here to basically create and, and find a way to, to make a living for themselves in, an, in what they considered a new world. That's right. So there were people on the ships who really weren't coming for religious freedom necessarily. Absolutely, yeah. So William Bradford, in his accounting, would call the, the people we know as the religious separatists saints. 
and would call the others strangers. And that was the, the two names that we uh, use in the book as well. Tell us about that first feast in Plymouth in 1621 and how it differs from popular mythology. That particular feast is tied to the American holiday, and it, it became, you know, almost in pop culture, a, a seminal moment of kind of a creation of a country, you know, and, and this uh, very beautiful feast of Native people and colonists getting together. But as much as we have kind of lionized and lauded the story, in history, it was so unremarkable to the English that they actually only wrote about a paragraph about it. So there isn't a whole lot of written information about the feast itself. Do we know anything about the foods that were eaten at that first gathering? I, I think we know what the Wampanoag or Native peoples ate in general. Yeah, there is some description of the food. Edward Winslow was one of the Mayflower passengers, one of the people on the plantation, uh, in a letter writing back to England, described the, the feast. Essentially, they had brought in their crops. They had a hard year. Through the first winter, half of them had passed away from exposure or hunger, and they did not have the proper seeds to grow for successful crops in the soil for the sandy soil of Mass uh, coastal Massachusetts. So when they did successfully, with the help of Wampanoag people, trade for seeds and uh, raise a successful crop. They, they wanted to celebrate it. So they would have grown crops that would have been native to the regions, corn, beans, and squash. And so that would have been definitely on the menu. There is also a description of Usamequin, who uh, is often referred to as Massasoit. That's actually his title, not uh, his name. A Massasoit is a grand sachem or a chief of chiefs in a way. And so Usamequin would come to the village after hearing the gunfire, the celebration that was going on, wondering what was going on with 90 men. And essentially, they found out nothing out of sorts was happening. You know, they had already made plenty of contact ahead of that time. And the English invited them to stay for three days. Now, there wasn't enough food for all 90 men that had just arrived. And so the uh, Usamequin sent out some of his men to hunt five deer who they and, and so they added five deer and venison was on the menu and the English described themselves as sending some of their hunters out to go what they say fowling now 17th century English uh, use of that word would typically describe fowling as hunting water birds so likely duck and geese turkey could have been there but it's not described in detail or given uh, prominence that we see in uh, the modern day Thanksgiving meal Interesting. And just quickly talk about even the term Thanksgiving and the meaning that it had for the pilgrims or the saints or the strangers. <laughs> In the 17th century, interestingly enough, the idea of a feast would not have been to the English anyway, a Thanksgiving at all. In the 17th century, the English did have a tradition of declaring days of Thanksgiving. And so that's a different than a Thanksgiving holiday or a Thanksgiving feast. A day of Thanksgiving could happen any time of the year. It was usually declared by either the king or the, the, the Anglican church. And it was a way for the citizens of England to sow their covenant with God. And it would be spent as a day of solemn prayer and fasting, which is the opposite of feasting. The frivolity that was going on for three days during the feast wouldn't have even been considered back then in the 17th century to the English as a day of Thanksgiving at all. It's actually more resemblant of native celebrations of Thanksgiving feasts, which occur throughout the, the lunar year. And I say lunar year because that's uh, the way the calendar worked. 13 lunar cycles uh, happen throughout the year. 
And certain times of the year, we have the strawberry ripening month, they would have a strawberry Thanksgiving. When the corn was ripened, then there's a green corn festival. So Thanksgiving, having a feast in honor of the cyclical nature of the foods that become available during the year is actually more resemblant of the native traditions of the local region. So that's one of the things I try to point out is that the 19th century Thanksgiving dinner that started to emerge in America is really a harvest feast. It's really more resembling of that native tradition than it is a 17th century English day of Thanksgiving. We will get to that, the, the framing of the narrative in the 19th century. But before we do, I'd love for you to talk about the Pequot massacre, which was in 1637 and how that inspired a completely different day of Thanksgiving in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This is something that oftentimes people sometimes conflate the two histories together. So the, the Mayflower landing is 1620. The feast is in 1621. In 1636, the first war of aggression breaks out with England declaring war on the Pequot people in the Connecticut colony. And in the war, as it builds up, it culminates in 1637, in May of 1637, with a massacre, a burning of an entire Pequot village by the English and their allies. And they would end up killing 600 men, women, and children in that massacre. It was known as the Pequot Massacre. And so what ends up happening is another colony had been established by this time in 1637, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, after the massacre, would declare that the next year they would have a day of Thanksgiving in honor of the English victory known as to Pequots as the Pequot Massacre. So a lot of times folks do associate the creation of Thanksgiving, not necessarily with the feast, but actually with events like victories in battle, which could include a massacre. And so there's definitely different takes on it. But one of the things I would caution people to do is that once again, the modern day Thanksgiving holiday that we have is about really getting together family and food and is really not tied to that English day of Thanksgiving, which would tie it to uh, the violence of the Pequot War. Which the violence, the brutality of it is remarkable. The burning of an entire village. It's the beginning of a slash and burn strategy by the English at that point, where it wasn't, they weren't targeting combatants only, they were targeting everybody. And the point of the Pequot War, when the English declared war on the Pequots, was to rid the territory of Pequots. This was in every single way, that particular war anyway, was in every single way a, a full-on genocide. Right, right. It really an ethnic cleansing, a genocide. Now, when we move into the 19th century, there's this fascinating woman, Sarah Josepha Hale, who helped fund Vassar College. She was the editor of Godey's Ladies Book, which was enormously influential. Tell us about her role in this I want to call it a melee at this point. Yes. So Sarah Josepha Hale, uh, you know, is a, a somebody from the 19th century. And she rose to prominence as the editor of Godey's Ladies Book. She would raise the readership, uh, the subscriber list, up to 150,000 plus subscribers. And in the 19th century, that's a humongous sphere of influence. This precedes Ladies Home Journal, right? So dress patterns are being sold through these magazines. All types of things are, are being sold. And year after year, she would write editorials encouraging the country 
to really embrace what was starting to happen, mostly in New England, but by state by state, the idea of having a Thanksgiving feast, which was typically happening in November. Some states were having them on the first no, first Thursday, some were the second, some were the third. They were kind of all over the place. Nothing was really standardized. And she really loved the tradition. And she really wanted to make it a national tradition. Now, she also did a whole lot of tying the tradition of the Thanksgiving feast with the landing of the Mayflower. And, part, and that's not necessarily all her fault, because William Bradford's manuscript of Plymouth Plantation was lost for well over 200 years and reappeared again in the 19th century. And in 1841, a gentleman named Alexander Young, writing about Bradford's manuscript, would see the letter from Edward Winslow describing the three-day feast, that one paragraph, and in his footnote at the bottom would call it the first Thanksgiving, which is once again a 19th century feast, which is very re reminiscent of the modern-day Thanksgiving feast that we have today. So she would write year after year after year about trying to create this. She would write to an influential leaders, and then eventually one of her letters gets to William Seward, during the time of Abraham Lincoln's presidency. And that's when things really changed. Because of the Civil War, which wasn't the Civil War, but which wasn't known as the Civil War, right? Right. It was, at the time yet, it wasn't called the Civil War, right? It's, it's a war between the states, but the war is still raging. The North is winning. Abraham Lincoln is, of course, in charge of the Union Army. And they're looking at what do we do after the war is over? The southern states are going to still be part of this country. How do we bring all these people together? There was a, a lot of pressure, really, on Abraham Lincoln to find a way to heal from the bloodiest war on, on this landscape ever. This entire story is fascinating. And even just getting back to Hale for a moment, she did seem to have such a thing for tradition. I read elsewhere that she was responsible for popularizing the Christmas tree and the white wedding dress <laughs> in the United yeah. States. And she also wrote a little ditty called Mary Had a Lamb, which we all know as Mary Had a Little Lamb now. Yes. And she was also a staunch feminist at the same time. It, really, this is such an unlikely brew here. How did you conduct research for the book, Chris? There is so much in here and told in such a readable way for young people. So... During my time at the Pequot Museum, we were oftentimes, because people did conflate the Pequot Massacre and the declaration by John Winthrop of a day of Thanksgiving, sometimes with the Thanksgiving holiday, we were constantly getting questioned about it. And so as a result, I created an educational classroom uh, enrichment program called Demystifying Thanksgiving as a way of talking about the holiday in a culturally competent fashion. And as I researched it, that's where I started to come find out about Sarah Josepha Hale and all of this. I was really fascinated myself by it. I really got drawn into it. And then at the museum, we also created another public event called Feast. So this event that we called Feast would happen around the Thanksgiving holiday. It would happen in November. We would have a harvest feast and the menu would be all indigenous inspired. So no pork, beef, or chicken on the menu because cows, uh, pigs, and chickens don't arrive here until Europeans bring them. 
So it's fish, it's duck, venison on the menu, corn, beans, squash. Our chef was Sherry Hocknett, who was Wampanoag. And so with that event, I would often do educational presentations and I would change the material year after year after year. So I've been really working in and out of this material for years and really kind of honing it with Wampanoag people, especially to make sure that I'm telling it correctly. You're the perfect person to write this book. It's great to have a Native American lens on it. I wonder, what did you learn about Thanksgiving when you were growing up? I learned basically the same narrative that has been taught to many generations since the 19th century. There was no different research. I went to school uh, in Badocnigook, a Passamaquoddy school. We had a, a strong sense that the Thanksgiving holiday didn't found our homeland, which we've been existing in for over 12,000 years. So we, we didn't necessarily put the two together, although the first Thanksgiving narrative was taught to us at a very, very young age, very much the same innocent way as taught to all kindergartners and first graders without the extra context. I didn't learn about the great dying until I was an adult. Even in my own school in, in, uh, in Indian Township, we still were not afforded these pieces of history. And I actually felt kind of a little slighted by that because these things happen to Native people. And it's part of the story of how we got to where we are today. And as human beings, we all exist in this space together now. And what we can do as human beings existing in this space together is look backward, see where we as human beings made mistakes. And I think we can say really clear that, you know, genocidal warfare is one of the, an example of a mistake that we as human beings shouldn't continue with each other. So let's admit that this was wrong. And then from there, we can start to do better together to build a better future for ourselves collectively, not just for Native people, but for all of us to see each other equally. Well said. Katie, tell us about your editorial role at Scholastic and on the What If series in particular. As Chris mentioned, this series was originally published by Scholastic between the 70s and the 90s. It has been revised before, and there are several books in this series. But as we were taking a look at it, and I believe it was 2019, our understanding was that a lot of the books were very outdated. And one of the big things that we noticed is that they presupposed a white audience reading the books because the idea is what if you lived, it's question and answers. And if the answers only apply to your white students, then obviously you're excluding a big population of students and, his, and history and how things affected historical peoples who were non-white. So as we were revamping, one of our big points that we wanted to be very firm on is we wanted to relaunch this series with BIPOC creators, with very genuine connections to the subject matter. And one of the things I was really excited about was relaunching with Plymouth Thanksgiving, which we did not have a Thanksgiving book in the original series. We had a Mayflower book and we had several books that talked about various indigenous tribes, but we did not have a specific Thanksgiving book. One of the things that I think we can all agree is that, as Chris mentioned, the narrative that's been taught to students over the last several hundred years is not the one that is accurate. And so it's really exciting to kind of offer something that's not really out there for kids right now, a resource that kids and parents and teachers can use to have a frank and honest discussion about Thanksgiving. It's so helpful and done with such care for young readers. 
Talk a little bit about the illustrations by Winona Nelson and how she approached them. Oh, Winona's illustrations are just so gorgeous. We feel so lucky that she was excited to work on the book. Essentially, we went to her with a layout already done. So she had a good idea of where we needed illustrations. And we kind of outlined very loosely what we were looking for in each space. But we gave her a lot of freedom to explore because she is also an Indigenous woman and she does her own research and she has her own connection to the story and to her history. And one of the things that I thought was really lovely is that in the Thanksgiving scene toward the end of the book, she actually painted an image of her father into the modern Thanksgiving scene, which I thought was just such a lovely tribute. And I I mean, I think she did just such an amazing job. This is her first picture book and we're excited to have her signed up for more. So I I think she's really just such an amazing talent and has really beautifully interpreted Chris's words. This book is just incredible in every way. So helpful and interesting and beautiful. Chris, you mentioned an important takeaway for this book. I wondered if there's anything else either of you would like to add about what you hope young readers will learn from this book. Yeah, I mean, in some of the reviews, they they really kind of nailed some of the, the goals that I was looking to. And then one of them was to make sure to put Wampanoag people back into the present. Because we hear about the Mayflower story and oftentimes only talk about them in the past. That creates some implicit biases some unconscious biases that we have. In Massachusetts and Connecticut, one of the things I noticed when I moved to that territory is the erasure of Native peoples is so complete that when I worked at the Pequot Museum, it was not uncommon for a guest, a child, even their parent, to ask if the Pequots were actually alive. In the Pequot Museum, their own tribal museum, with a Pequot educator leading the tour, they're just literally not putting two and two together. So it lets us know that our public education system and the media that we're creating is doing a really messy job of putting Native people back into the present. So that's one of the things that I wanted to make sure happened, is that not only do we talk about the history but we talk about the survivance and the resistance and the beauty of the culture of the Wampanoag people that we have today. One of the things I'm really excited about for this book and one of the things that it did for me is that I think it helps to start reframing how we view history. I think creating this wider view, I think what Chris has done so beautifully is, as you mentioned, you know, start from before the Mayflower and really explore what was already going on in the territory that we now call the United States before the saints and the pilgrims arrived. And it really starts to reframe the way that we're taught at a very young age to think about America and to think about the birth of a country. And I think it's a really important reframing. And I think it starts the conversation by starting with something like Thanksgiving, which is a holiday that everyone is very familiar with and starting to reframe that narrative. Absolutely. The book is designed for seven to 10 year olds, but I hope readers of all ages will pick it up. I know I learned so much. Thank you both very much for joining me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much. My great thanks again to Chris Newell for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Native American History Month and Chris's book, If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer 
Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. Mm-hmm.